This is Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42, going down to verse 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will we make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Evan Skelton. I, am, I have the privilege of being one of the pastor elders here today. You've heard from the other two, John and Larry, um, as well this, in this service. Um, and uh, I, again, want to s- extend a welcome to you. If you are, whether you have been here in this church for years, or this is your first Sunday, we are a church that is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're a very simple church that's about that one message that's transformed our lives, which we're convinced uh, has implications for absolutely everything. The gospel changes everything, every part of life, and it's the thing we hope you gain crystal clarity about this morning more than anything else. And so if you do have any questions about what happens in our service, something that's said or done in the songs or in the sermon, we don't pretend to, uh, that everything that happens in a service makes sense to everyone here, um, even for those who have been here for some time. And one of my, some of my favorite conversations are about uh, filling in the gaps of why we do what we do, what, why we say what we say, even as we want to make everything comprehensible, whether you come here identifying as a Christian or not. And so um, we, uh, again, it is our privilege to, to um, welcome you here to hear God's word and a good word, even this word today. You know, we say every Sunday, you know, this is the word of the Lord, and we ask you to respond back, thanks be to God. That's with purpose, because God's word is the best word. It's a word that holds authority. But did you find yourself even hesitating a little bit to say, thanks be to God for a passage like this one? This passage is uh, about, um, the, about several things, but who knew that you were coming to Bayless to talk about drowning and dismemberment? let alone of the worm and fire of hell. Today, again, we want to say thanks be to God for his word, but I, I want to tell you, even as I preach these words, I, I feel my own hesitation in them. I think every Christian does as we talk about the reality of God's judgment and wrath. I, I don't know of a Christian, I, that, uh, a, Christ, a Christian leader or a Christian who's spent their time seeking to comprehend these realities that can talk about hell with a smile on their face. And yet, nonetheless, I think um, it's good that we are in texts like this, that we can't just skip over them. That's one of the reasons that, again, we preach what's called expositionally through the, I mean, sorry, uh, uh, exegetically through the scriptures. We go uh, week by week expositionally through the scriptures, looking at uh, uh, each passage as it comes, and that we might allow God's word to preach and lead us and not just the pastor's opinions, because that's the last thing that we need. Um, and uh, this passage, even as uncomfortable as it is, to be certain, I think if you hang on with me this morning, I think we will gain much more than a clear sense of the horror of sin and the rightness of God's justice, which we need. We need a clear sense of these realities. I think we'll also come away with a clearer sense of the love of Christ and the love he offers us today, the life he offers. In fact, if we allow the Bible to speak before we shut down or shout back, I think we will find ourselves more shocked by the love of Jesus than the wrath that he threatens. But let's get to it. We're going to split our passage today in uh, three parts. The incalculable, incalculable, let's see if I can get that right, the incalculable danger of sin, the incalculable cost of discipleship, 
and the incalculable worth of the kingdom. Talk about a tongue, tongue twister, right, to get to go. Okay, here we go. So I'm going to be saying that word a lot. Let's see if I can get it right. The incalculable danger of sin. You know, several months ago, I sat down with a friend, um, and uh, a friend who was, you could say, searching spiritually. This friend had grown up a Christian, spent much of his life identifying as a Christian, and yet didn't anymore. And over a series of coffee conversations, we talked through many of the reasons why. The exclusive claims that Christianity makes, the Bible's teaching on sex and gender, and thankfully, he was up to this point, very willing to talk openly, even about his skepticism. This particular time, though, the conversation turned to a much different topic, and you probably can guess it, the topic of hell. Something he simply couldn't see as compatible with what the Bible also would claim about the love and goodness of God. How could both be true? I don't think he's the only one to have asked that question. Perhaps you have as well. As we look in Mark chapter 9, I hope you will keep your Bibles open to this passage as I turn there myself. But this passage, again, of all the subjects in Christian doctrine, I know very few that elicit the same kind of gag reflex among Western Americans, including many religious people, as the Bible's teaching on everlasting punishment. It isn't just a subject of controversy. It awakens a visceral reaction for many people. Even Christian theologian John Stott once said, I find the concept, and he's referring to hell, intolerable, and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. Even C.S. Lewis wrote, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. Now, thank goodness, Christian, Christian doctrine isn't dependent upon my opinions. But I think we feel the tensions of this. I don't know about you, I feel this strain. No one, even Christians, should talk about hell again with a smile on their face, as if we enjoyed the idea of it, a place of final separation from God's mercy. A place where only God's retribution is felt forever. A place where, as Jesus himself says, the worm does not die, nor is the fire ever quenched. Are those words hard for you? As theologian Denny Burke points out, for most of church history, across every branch of Christianity, Christians have understood the Bible's teaching about final judgment and Jesus' teaching about hell to describe a place of endless conscious torment. And yet, I, I don't know any Christian, despite the fact that Christians have been unanimous over 2,000 years about this teaching, I should say largely so, the majority of Christians, I don't know any Christian who likes talking about these things, and for good reason. It's no wonder many Christians, particularly today, are attracted by alternatives. Alternative positions, like annihilational, uh, sorry, annihilationism, which teaches that God's wrath, as real as it is, it consumes the ungodly. Eventually they cease to exist. Or universalism, which teaches that all people will eventually be saved. Or purgatory, even many Protestant Christians have taken what has been historically a Catholic teaching, a teaching that I, I, the Bible in no way teaches, have taken purgatory as an addition to um, their understanding of hell, as, as maybe God's wrath is more purifying than it is punishing. Maybe for some, it is making them worthy for heaven. Maybe after a certain time period, they will find themselves also in the kingdom of God. And still others see hell as more of a symbol of an unknown, but maybe still bad outcome after death. I don't mind telling you that I think Jesus disagrees with each of these positions strongly, including in this passage, though I can understand the basic impulse to seek out an alternative. 
Hell is one of the things that gets uglier the more you think about it. For some, this doctrine alone has been even reason enough to leave Christianity behind. So why would we bother our time with it? Why would we spend time with it? Why wouldn't we skip it over? Why can't we just skip on to chapter 10? And then if you look at chapter 10, as we're going to go next week, you'll see it's about divorce. So I'm not sure we want to skip to that passage. But then, again, before we shut down or shout back, we need to say that the topic of hell was incredibly important to Jesus himself. In fact, Jesus, the one we know as the Lord of love, who is the preeminent teacher on grace and the mercy of God, teaches more, on, more about hell than any other author in the, in the Bible combined. And he does so in blood-curdling detail. Which means, at least, that Jesus thinks that this is a subject that we should be enormously clear on. The word that Jesus uses for hell is actually a Greek word, Gehenna, which comes from a Hebrew term that refers to the valley of Hinnom, which was a steep ravine just southwest of the city walls of Jerusalem, a place that first century Jews would have associated with uh, some rather traumatic events in their past. The clearest thing that first century Jews would have thought of is of some of their worst kings, Ahaz and Manasseh, who worshipped the pagan god Molech, and one of the things that Molech demanded was child sacrifices. And so they burned their own sons to death. And they burned those sons in the ravine of Hinnom. And since then, the site became associated with child sacrifice. That is, up until a different point, until the king Josiah put an end to it, said that that wouldn't continue. And it may have been during his time, again, the historical details are a bit unclear at this point, Josiah may have converted it to a, the city dump, where garbage was burned, and perhaps corpses of those who didn't have a family to bury them may have been burned as well. In other words, it was not a place you went to hang out. It was a place that was associated with fire and death. And in case this wasn't clear enough, we need to see Jesus' exact words here. He doesn't just use the term Gehenna. He refers to hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Quoting actually from a much earlier passage in the book of Isaiah by the prophet Isaiah. It's final verses, actually a book that's all about the hope that we have in the coming king, in the coming suffering servant, the Messiah, and the new heavens and new earth he would make. The final verses of Isaiah are some of the hardest verses we have in the entire Bible. Chapter 66, verses 22 through 24, the prophet Isaiah speaks of a final destiny that all human beings are headed to, and actually speaks of two. Not just one, but two states that human beings will be finally delivered over to, that human beings will be separated into. The first is what's called the new heavens and the new earth, that God will recreate, that he will bring to fulfillment all of his promises. And that world is the world that we've longed for, a place without weeping, a place without want, a place without untimely death, a place without bloody conflict or evil. But what makes the new heavens and new earth so good is that God himself is there with his people. God will deliver him, uh, to himself a people for himself as they find everlasting comfort and peace that they, they have been searching their whole life for. They will find it forever. Why? Because God himself will be their God and they will be his people. And yet some... Many, in fact, will not be delivered over to the new heavens and new earth, but to a world, as Isaiah puts it, a place, as verse 24 says in chapter 66 of Isaiah, where their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an, abhor an abhorrence to all flesh. The image of Gehenna is gruesome 
It's gruesome enough. Why then would Jesus feel the need to add something so additionally repulsive? Why would he go to Isaiah? Isn't it hard enough? Don't we get the point? To some of us, it might feel like a primitive scare tactic, something that we're used to religious people talking about to get people to stay in line. Or maybe we're, we associate it with some red-faced preacher like myself screaming at us to turn or burn forever. It may even seem silly. It may seem far-fetched to you. The stuff of Halloween on a day like today. And yet, I think Jesus is telling us something very profound. Not just about the nature of hell, but of the nature of sin itself. You see... The Bible teaches us that sin is so much more than just crossing a line. If I was to ask you again, how would you define what is sin? Largely, I know many people would say, oh, I could give you an example. It's like lying or cheating or cheating on your taxes, whatever you could come up with a fill in the blank. It's largely God has set a line, and then somebody has crossed the line, they've stepped the toe over, and largely God has, again, he said, these are my rules, you've broken my rules, therefore there are consequences. The Bible will say that. That's absolutely true. And yet the Bible says that sin is actually more than that. It's more repulsive than that. It's actually more corrupting than that. It's a bigger deal to him. In fact, the Bible will get closer to say that sin is more like being cheated on. Because God knows that emotionally, we just don't get it. We don't get the cost of it. And he said, okay, you know what you do get the cost of? Think of sexual betrayal. Think of adultery. That is what it feels like to be me when you sin, is what God says. Sin is much more like rebellion. An ongoing rebellion. A life set in opposition to God. That's a language, actually, that Isaiah uses. Who are those that are, find themselves in this world where The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is those who have rebelled against God. You know, that rebellion may be unconscious, but the Bible says that it's it's actually the basic posture of human beings. Why? Because human beings, whether given 10 chances or 100 chances or a million chances, will always choose themselves as Lord and Savior instead of Him. The one we are made to depend upon. And in so doing... The natural consequence of that is that we've been cut off from him, cut off from a love relationship that is basic to our fabric as being human beings. It's what makes us human. It's what makes us complete. What we were intended for, made for, is to have a perfect, thriving, dependent love relationship with God himself. And in sin, we were removed from that very thing, and we have locked the door to him. And since God is the author of life and goodness... In so doing, we cut ourselves off from those very things, from life and from goodness. And the result is the opposite. It is corruption. It is decay. Notice that image of fire and worm. That's what it's getting at. The consequences of sin is spiritual decomposition. In other words, hell begins to grow in us before we ever get there. And one of the major themes that in the Bible is in the Bible is that God in his mercy has chosen to set limits on how far this corruption and decay will go. If you read the Old Testament but throughout the Bible you'll see again and again God mercifully intervenes, puts a stop to it. Puts an end to how far oppression will go, corruption will go, deceit will go. He puts a end to it for our sake. But what if his restraint were removed? What might we become? Makes me think of, again, I use illustrations from this book all the time, but from Lord of the Rings. If you've not read it, it's a discipleship issue. You need to go read it, okay? Lord of the Rings, in which I think Tolkien uh, speaks of the ring or pictures the ring, the subject of this book, well, one of the, one of the, well, you could say the enemy, the great enemy of this book, as a symbol of sin. I can't help but see the connections especially the effect that the ring will have on its wearers. If this is too nerdy for you, just bear with me. You see, the ring, one of the effects that it has is it extends the life of the ones who wear it. But the longer they wear it, the more it consumes them, the more it corrupts them. Like the character Gollum, who for 500 years thought of nothing else but his precious ring. K. 
kept it greedily close in the dark, and finally became a grotesque image of his former self. In fact, according to Gandalf in the books, you, if you were to wear the ring long enough, you would become permanently insubstantial, permanently invisible, a wraith of a person, a ghost of a man. You see, the ring gave a kind of life, but a cursed one. That, I think, is the image here. Yes, certainly the image of hell does speak of the just and intense wrath of God himself. What many theologians have referred to as the active wrath of God. But it also refers to what theologians have referred to as the passive wrath of God. What do you mean? What do we mean by passive wrath? Well, this kind of wrath is as God gives us over to the consequences of our sin. Think of this if you are a parent, and uh, sometimes, you know, the best consequence with your children is just to let them see how their present choices work out. That is the passive wrath of God. He not only acts injustice due to our sin, he hands us over to their natural effects. He allows sin to have its way with us. And what does it do? It corrupts us. It decomposes us at a soul level. Again, when we give ourselves over to sin, it rots us. And a little, you could say, hell begins to grow. Continue to walk that path, as Jesus warns, and only one destiny remains, a place where God's merciful, restraining hand is removed and sin is allowed to have its way fully and entirely with us forever. The fire and worm, again, to look at this image, I know that some of us are ready to leave this image behind, but we need to stick with it for a second. The worm here, again, is the image of a maggot. Normally, fire and maggots would die off once their fuel or flesh was consumed once they had finished what's the assumption here they will never die because it will never finally fully be consumed it is an image of ongoing corruption everlasting decomposition as tim keller says jesus is saying that the spiritual decomposition of hell never ends the worm never dies there and if that is true what might we become in such a place where our very souls fall apart. Notice how C.S. Lewis describes this. It can be a little confusing, so let me see if I, but follow along here. C.S. Lewis, again, speaking of this, how hell begins to grow before we ever get there. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but still you are distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself. He's referring to this grumbling attitude. You wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. And there you will, there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Now, I would put it much differently than Lewis, I just have to tell you. I would put it a little more strongly than Lewis does. But I think he's on to something very important here. I think, in one sense, yes, God does send those who finally reject his son to a, this place of horrible, everlasting judgment. Otherwise, what would be the meaning of better to, uh, again, it doesn't just say in our passage that one goes to hell, what does it say? They are thrown into it. It should grieve us and warn us. Yes, God sends people to hell. And yet in another sense, we do send ourselves. And the death there is worse than, as Jesus puts it, it is worse than having a heavy stone tied around your neck and being drowned in the sea. He says that kind of death is a mercy when compared to this one. As Lewis says elsewhere, in the long run, the answer to those who, to all those who reject to the object of, sorry, who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To leave them alone? 
Alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. In the end, there are two kinds of people, only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. If this isn't true, I just need to tell you, then it's no use worrying your little head over. This is not, you, not worth the discomfort. If this is not true, you can keep reducing hell into a cartoon and move on with your Halloween. But then again, I have to ask you, if it's not true, if we can't trust Jesus' words on hell, then why would we be able to trust his words of assurance about heaven? If it is true, then, then we should treat it like smelling salts, Jesus' warning that should wake us up. Many of us who want to rage against God over this, many of us, we want to correct God on this, to soften Jesus' words, but we should realize what we are doing when we do so. What we are saying is we are telling Jesus, we're telling Jesus, the, the one who taught us, not only what love is, but has shown us what love is. We are saying to him, the author and sustainer of life, the picture of love itself, we are saying to Jesus, I am wiser than you. I am more compassionate than you. I am less barbaric than you. Jesus, I'll take over from here. I don't think any of us wants to stand on that footing. Is it possible then that this warning, if it comes from the Lord of love, that it is out of great love too? That it is good that God speaks so clearly on this? I mean, he could have, Jesus could have, out of fear of offending us, or out of cold indifference, glossed it over and left us to find it out too late. Instead, out of great love, Jesus urges us to do whatever it takes to avoid that fate. Which leads to our second point, the incalculable cost of discipleship. We've looked at the incalculable danger of sin. Now let's look at the incalculable cost of discipleship. I'm getting better at it. You see, even as the word hell stands out to her here as if it was written in glowing neon, what we're going to look at is the real point of the passage, and it may be just as alarming. After all, look at the images that Jesus uses. Jesus talks about cutting off your own hand, about amputating your own foot, about plucking out one of your eyes. I mean, can you imagine asking your doctor to perform such a procedure? Um, so why, why are we in here today? Is it because something's diseased? No, no, Jesus, I was just reading Mark chapter 9. I mean, come on, Jesus. I mean, it's shocking and gruesome. I mean, keep it PG. Why, why is Jesus so extreme? What's his point here? At one level, I think Jesus is giving us a picture, again, of how complex sin is. Sin isn't just a matter of lying and, and murder and adultery. Sin is found in the things that we do. See this with the image of hands. It's found where we go, the image of feet. It's found in the very things that we see, the eyes. Even as we and the world we live in is not as bad as it could be, there is no place where sin has not reached in its infection. And if we are going to avoid its spiritual decay, it's going to take much more than restricting what movies you watch and installing pornography filters on your computer, as wise as these things are. It's going to take relentless, costly intention. Now, I think... All of us, at least I hope, know that cutting off one of our body parts would not be enough to stop sin. If we were to take this literally, after all, I don't know anyone in this room that would have many body parts left. And please don't come next week and uh, with one of your hands cut off and expect me to give you a high five. With your good hand, that is. And yet, we must not soften it too much. After all, Jesus means this to be shocking. He means it to prove a point. He means to imply that our hatred of sin must be so profound, so intense, that we must be willing to do whatever it takes to avoid it. Anything that is leading us away from what the Bible uh, stirs up, our joy in Jesus, everything that's leading us away from that must be cut off, even if it means 
you might need to get off of social media or give someone else the passcode to your phone or break the relationship off, even if it means you must line up a hundred apologies this week or sell everything you have, even if it feels like you are plucking out your own eye. Jesus says that sin is that big of a deal. It is that dangerous and destructive. And like Jesus points out, it is not just our personal health and holiness, not just our joy that is on the line. It is the good of others as well. Notice verse 42, where Jesus begins. Jesus, when Jesus says it would be better for us to be drowned with a heavy millstone tied around our neck, he doesn't say all that about something that is causing us to sin. He says that about causing someone else to sin. The little ones here refers to a disciple, those who have humbly put themselves in dependence upon Jesus like a little child. I have to tell you again, this is enormous, enormously important. You see, I know many religious people who read this passage and pride themselves on their, their ability to keep themselves pure. Usually this means something like only watching G-rated movies or avoiding swearing, or not hanging around liberals. They assume they have obeyed this passage because their life, on the surface, looks very put together. It looks very Christian. I mean, have you seen their radio stations and t-shirts? And yet this very attitude is not only shallow, hiding often a very hypocritical and judgmental heart, this attitude can be the very thing that leads someone else into sin. After all, notice Jesus' words at another point in Matthew chapter 23, when he speaks to the Pharisees and delivers several woes. Who were the Pharisees? They were the responsible teachers of Israel. It was their job not only to obey God, but to teach others how to obey. And what does Jesus say to them? Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Listen to this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. It's a convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Friends, these would be the ones that we assumed were put together, the ones who were following God, who had figured it out, the ones who had obeyed all the rules. And what does he call them? Children of hell who are reproducing more. Sometimes, friends, all it takes... For someone to reject Christianity is the bitterness, self-righteousness, apathy, and cruelty they are receiving from us. Does that terrify you a little? That in your attempt to keep yourself safe from all the corruption out there, you may be leaving a trail of bodies behind you. And more than that, I think this is Jesus' point in Matthew 23. We are passing on our sin more than we know. Just think about how easily friends can rile each other up. How many conversations have left you more resentful and self-justified than you were before them? Or think of how often your worst brings out the worst in your spouse. Let me ask you, how many of you find yourselves doing the very things your parents once did, the very things you said you would never do? I'll tell you what, thinking about my kids, the fact that I'm passing on more of my sin than I know, that keeps me up at night. That is why sin can't simply be shrugged off or laughed away. It's why sin should be mourned. Why anything that is a leading, leading me away from Jesus should be caught off, whatever the cost. And by the way, notice Jesus says, cut off your hand, not someone else's. In other words, the primary threat is not out there, it is in here. Some of us hear this and say, the way that I keep myself safe from sin is by to distance myself from all you sinners out there. That is not what this is saying in the, in the, in the slightest. 
Again, do you know, though, I need to ask, do you know even right now as we're talking about this, a decision you have put off for far too long? A radical action that you know you need to take. Something you finally need to say no to. Friend, resolve today to tell someone else about it. You're not the only one in this room. I can tell you from personal experience, but I need to ask you, friend, today, tell someone else about it. Bring it into the light. It is not just your joy that is at stake. It is not just a private thing. Others' holiness and joy is on the line as well. This is why we make ourselves dependent in awkward community. Why we confess and reveal more of ourselves than we, than we would naturally. Because sin is a huge deal and it affects more than just us. And we need others to walk forward in the joy that Christ has offered. But I realize what I promised is that this passage would eventually turn us to hope. And that's where we need to turn next, which I think we're ready for. So number three, the incalculable worth of the kingdom. The incalculable worth of the kingdom. In 1678, author John Bunyan published what has since become one of the most significant works of religious fiction in English literature, a book that has been translated into more than 200 languages and has never been out of print. It's phenomenal. Anybody know what the book is? A book famously known as Pilgrim's Progress. The full title of the book, I don't know if you noticed, though, is The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which Is to Come. doesn't fit so well on a book cover. As the title suggests, though, it describes the journey of a pilgrim. Now, don't think pilgrims as in the founding of the U.S. Think pilgrim as a journeyman named Christian. Pretty straightforward. It's an allegory. You wonder who the Christian is in this. Well, he tells you from his hometown called the City of Destruction to a new world called the Celestial City. The whole book is an allegory of the Christian life. And like the warning here in this passage, Christian, at the very beginning of the book, here's a similar warning from, again, what the, what the author, John Bunyan, calls the book, I wonder which book that was referring to, of fire and destruction. Overwhelmed by fear and the increasing burden of his sin, he weeps and trembles and cries out, What shall I do? What shall I do to be saved? Evangelist. Again, really on the nose here. Evangelist meets him, like Jesus, and points the way to a distant gate and urges Christian to proceed to it for help. Even though it will mean leaving friends and family behind, despite Christian pleading with his loved ones that they would join him on that way, Soon enough, he hits, heads out alone onto this road. And Christian soon finds out that the hard choices have only just begun. He will pass through what's called the slough of, hold on, despond. Okay, that's, it sounds like the Princess Bride, doesn't it? I don't know if you're familiar with the, the, the pit of despair. Okay, so... The swamp of despair is what that you could translate that as. The hill of, ascend the hill of difficulty, walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and face the giants of self-doubt, all while facing many opportune shortcuts and temptations to compromise, often from the companions that he meets along the way, some of which he takes to his own demise. The reason, though, I think about this whole journey and all of the difficult decisions that Christian has to make along the way is that there's a shift that takes place throughout the book. Even as what motivated Christian to leave the city of destruction behind is fear, something else en enables him to endure the costs ahead. Something more pure and enduring than the sense of fear, which is right and good. Instead, a clear vision of the glorious city that he is heading to. In many ways, I think that's what we see here in what Jesus is saying. Look back at these verses. Let me look at them with you. Again, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. 
Notice that language, to enter into life. Even if he, as he, you can almost see Jesus saying with this with a smirk of crippled, right? Entering as if we would enter that life crippled. With not, that life we know is the, uh, a life that brings full restoration. But nonetheless, here, what's, what we see with what Jesus is saying is that the fear of God's wrath, even as it's smelling salts for us, you know, for some of us who have lived our whole lives that assuming uh, we uh, have enough time to get things right with God, that we can just keep living our life on this course and we'll get it, we'll get it right sometime before the end. Or some of us who have assumed that I, you know, I already made that decision, the important one when I was a kid, and uh, that got God off my back now, and now I can live life how I want to. This passage alone should wake us up. And yet, to walk along Jesus' way, to embrace the cost of discipleship, the daily cost of it, something deeper than fear, something more pure and something more enduring than fear must come to motivate you. Fear is an important motive, but an immature and temporary one. Again, speaking as a parent, I know that in raising my kids into the kind of adults we pray that they will be, they need more than just their dad's active discipline. Caring for their heart means to instill a longing, loves that are deeper. Not just fear of going outside of dad's boundaries, but that they actually want to stay on the path of Christ, the long, enduring joy and cost of discipleship. Long obedience in the same direction takes something more profound than even fear. It doesn't take, after all, very long for that sense of fear to diminish. It only motivates us so long as we're convinced that God is looking over my shoulder. And as long as I'm convinced that there's real danger in the path that I am walking. And I don't know about you, but I might feel that one moment and not the next. What Jesus gives here is a clear vision of something better. Something that makes all the costs, including all the daily no's, the ongoing small deaths, until death worth it, what he describes as entering the life of the kingdom. Only knowing, in other words, the supreme value of God's kingdom, and more importantly, of the king itself, can I stand to lose, often intentionally, what is dear to me. One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from Jackie Hill Perry in her book, Gay Girl, Good God, who describes her experience of gender confusion and her once wholehearted embrace of of homosexuality. Something she says felt more natural to her than heterosexuality ever could. But more importantly in this book, Jackie describes how she came to find wholeness in an unexpected place as she was seeking Jesus. Early on in her book, she describes the day after she came to faith in Christ, in which a beautiful young woman entered the checkout line where she worked. And like clockwork, desire rose up in her. But, she recounts, I wanted something, I also wanted something else. God. Wanting God, as she says, over a woman was an entirely new experience for me. It wasn't even something I considered as being part of Christianity, let alone the Christian. It seemed to be a religion of just duty. I've met so many disciples who preached more of sin than joy, whose eyes were stuck in a constant state of solemnity, clenched teeth in an endless fascination with holiness. Why haven't they ever mentioned the place happiness had within righteousness, or how the taking up of the cross would be a practice of obtaining delight, delight in all that God is? Even their Savior had this kind of joy in mind as he endured the cross. So why haven't they set their focus on the same? In their defense, they were not to blame for my unbelief. I just wonder if they had told me about the beauty of God just as much, if not more, than they told me about the horridness of hell, if I would have burned my idols at a faster pace. Ironically, friends, that the life Jesus offers doesn't come to those who work their entire lives to keep themselves clean from all the corruption around them. It comes to those who want Jesus and his kingdom more than they want anything else. Only that desire makes a thousand costs to come worth it. And that desire comes only when we understand the gospel itself. After all, Jesus didn't just threaten 
hell. In many ways, you could say that he endured hell for us. Now, I don't mean to say that Jesus ever went to hell. The Bible actually teaches the opposite. In fact, Jesus himself says on the cross that after his death, he will go to paradise with his father, immediately to his father's presence in heaven. But what Jesus endured on the cross for us, all of the torments he experienced being cut off from all the sense and experience of his own father's love, Jesus faced what all of us should have had to face in hell itself. I wonder if that's what the Apostles' Creed, if you're not familiar with the Apostles' Creed, an ecumenical creed that is united Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants alike, when it says that Jesus descended into hell, something that for thousands of years Christians have been saying. What could that mean? I think in many ways that I wonder if it means that on the cross, Jesus faced the torments of hell, the full force of God's wrath in body and soul for us. John Calvin sure thought so, that in the cross, as he says, Jesus suffered in his soul the terrible torments of a condemned and forsaken man. He goes on, the death that God in his wrath had afflicted upon the wicked. He goes on again, surely no more terrible abyss can be conceived than to feel yourself forsaken and estranged from God, and when you call upon him not to be heard. It's as if God himself had plotted your ruin. This is what Calvin says Jesus himself experienced. It was like hell. This position was actually later adopted by the Heidelberg Catechism. But more importantly, this catechism tells us why this matters, this line. Why was it added, as it says, he descended into Hades or hell? This is why. That in my greatest temptation... I may be assured that Christ my Lord, by his inexpressible anguish, pains and terrors, which he suffered in his soul on the cross and before, has redeemed me from the anguish and torment of hell. In other words, the one who warns of punishment to come faces that infinite punishment himself. He doesn't just warn us and then leave us to it. He volunteers to face that same wrath head on, that we might only know life and joy forever. Friends, the irony is, unless we come to grips with what the Bible teaches about all the ugly and terrible realities bound up with the Bible's teaching about sin and God's wrath, unless we come to grips with them, we will never understand the immeasurable greatness of his love. Let me say that again. Unless we understand the ugly realities of hell, we will never understand the immeasurable greatness of his love. Unless we come to understand these things, the cross will always be small in our imagination. If you want to understand how greatly God has loved you in Christ and rest upon that love so genuinely that you are able to then embrace all the costs of following him, we must see all that he endured voluntarily for our sake. As Romans 5, 9 says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. One of my favorite hymns comes from, is the When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. You know this hymn? I want to read some of its final lines. Before I do, well, for the sake of time, I just need to, you to know that we're not going to spend time looking at these last two verses. Everyone will be salted with fire. If you would like to talk about those, I'm happy to talk with them. They've confused many interpreters, but at least the point here is that what Jesus is saying, and I think it's essential with his argument, is that those who come to know him and to trust in him and find their delight in the kingdom, instead of corruption and corrupting others, they will preserve the lives of those around them like salt, that they will be transformed for the good of those around them. Everyone is going to be tested by suffering and loss. As it says here, everyone will be salted by fire. But for the Christian, it refines. For the Christian, it produces something wonderful and beautiful that deeply impacts those around them. Do we want to have that corrupt, that not only to give ourselves over to internal corruption, but see it outwork to others? Or the opposite, a life that preserves and brings beauty and invites into the relationship of peace we ourselves have from Christ. 
I told you I wasn't going to talk about it, but we did. So when I survey the wondrous cross, here are these lines before we close. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of of, of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. Jumping to the final verse, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Lord, we come to you saying that that is the heart cry of believers here, and we want it to be our heart cry, but we need to understand what Christ himself endured in going to the cross, the gruesome nature of it, the ugly reality of it, and Lord, we praise you as the God who will finally answer sin, and that it's, that the, the implications and consequences of it, Lord, are going to be dealt with in full. We pray that that cup has, we, we praise you that that cup has been drunk by Jesus Christ. For Christians here, we We want to know that deep down in our bones, to live as free people, to live as those who can count all smaller costs as nothing in comparison to what we have gained in Christ. And for those who are not yet believers, would we be warned by these verses not to dismiss them as primitive or too extreme, to be honest enough about how our disregard of God has already begun to corrupt and affect those around us? Would we be woken up to the joy that is offered by Christ that doesn't come to those who perform and do well but those who are willing to surrender over to him and to say I want you more than I want anything else including my sin where they trust you in even now for the forgiveness that comes to all who come to you for it Lord we praise the name that is above every name the name before whom everyone will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord Pray for his sake, 